Brand new. Brand new. Episode one. <laughs> Welcome right. to episode one okay. of the podcast. <laughs> Brand new. Brand new. Brand new. Jacob. What did you, I thought you were going to do welcome to episode one. Okay, fine. Let, let's, let's get serious first. Okay. Brand new. Brand new. Brand new. I'll shut that off. Welcome to episode one of Brain New, the podcast. The podcast where we talk about the cutting edge of neuroscience, medicine, and why you should care. Brought to you from two untrained individuals who just have bachelors in... Neuro- neuroscience. I was gonna say neurology, but that's the goal for the future. What about you, Jacob? What did oh, you I, study? I uh, <clears throat> studied biotech and uh, bi- bioscience and biotech. I think was the, the name of my major. It was biotech. Cool. I studied biotech. Nice. You can cut into that. Yeah. So you studied biology. Let's right. just get to that point. So we <laughs> we're very passionate about the brain and biology and what new science has to say and how that contributes and builds on the previous knowledge that we have available to us. That's how we um, progress this forward, man. Exactly. We want to show you that it's not hard to learn um, from primary sources. You should be doing it. It's hard to read their language, but we're going to critique them. And that must mean that you, an untrained individual listening, can probably do the same because we're really not that smart. So <laughs> let's get right into it. So, Jacob, I want to ask you a question. I'm ready. Let's say you're walking down the road. You know, it's you know weird place, but this guy comes up to you, like super you know, mysterious man comes up to you, um, and he just kind of gets like super, super close, like this close, and he just whispers in your ear. He's like, I can tell you how you die and when you die. What do you say? Um, I mean, yeah. I get what I get what you're I get I get what you're getting at. I'm picking up what you're putting down. Do Damn. I want to know? Do I want to know how and when I die? It's it's really hard to say, and it's an ethical question that's been pondered uh, for for millennia. No, <laughs> but uh, in all seriousness, <clears throat> I'm of the I'm of the belief that I think I, I would want to know, especially if you know it's it is something. Well, maybe I change my mind. I don't know. Especially if it's something that's that's curable, maybe preventable. Um, so it depends whether or not I can prevent it is essentially the bottom line. Because if I can't, please don't tell me. Why not? No, let's, not, let's not get into that. How does that make I don't, you feel? <laughs> personally, I don't know if I'd want to know, especially from him. But <laughs> yeah. in the general sense of the question, um, I, think it would, I think it would be nice. You know, I, I, think, I think you should know. Um, and that kind of to tie into the topic, a very weird way to tie into the topic is we're going to be discussing a paper um, that looks uh, to a new way to test Alzheimer's disease, uh, a test that can test it 14 years before you get it with a 99 percent or 99.9 percent accuracy rate. Um, and whether or not this is true or not, this is kind of the information that's gathered from this paper. So is that, you know, something that can be helpful for the future? Or is that even the same thing as the first scenario um, right. that I just talked about? But whether or not that, you know, you're horrified or amazed to think about that tests like these are, are becoming closer to becoming basically like your, your yearly colonoscopy for your brain, except the doctor isn't just like shoving his finger in your ear and like feeling around and stuff. 
like they do with with the other the other one the colonoscopy you know you know what i'm saying yes i know what you're saying (laughs) (laughs) but everyone knows what you're saying (laughs) i hope so actually no i hope they don't um so there's been a lot of new research um giving us new ways to test markers of alzheimer's and historically really the only accurate markers we had were, were genetic markers um and these genes could kind of be classified as a few major candidates as the APOE family or APO, APOE, uh, specifically the APOE4 variant of this gene um, and PSCN1 and 2 as well. So do you want to talk a little bit about these? Because I know you do research in cellular Alzheimer's on a, you know, the cellular, cellular level. Right, exactly. Right. It is. Um, yeah, so at the cell level, we study Alzheimer's disease with uh, stem cells, actually. Uh, my lab, uh, I work in right now at uh, Arizona State. <clears throat> and the APOE4 family, there's four variants of it. One, or uh, there, sorry, there's four variants of it, but two, three, and four are highly, highly characterized. Um, I, actually, let me, let me rephrase that. Two is not. Three and four are. My lab is currently looking into two. Um, but uh, the idea is that three is, you know, 75% of the nation has APOE3. It's pretty standard. You have, you know, say normalized to three, you have X percent chance of getting Alzheimer's disease. It becomes, uh, I, I don't remember the stat off the top of my head, but essentially your risks increase greatly when you have APOE4. And for every gene, there's two alleles, right? So in your chromosome, you'll have two alleles of this, uh, this, APOE gene, and it, it's researchers show that it's dose dose dependent. So, in, with increasing um, disease risk, it goes. You'd have two, 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 three, 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 right, and so on up until you have APOE four, four. Your homozygous for APOE four, um, and with that increasing frequency, studies are showing that with APOE four, you're more likely to get. Uh, Alzheimer's disease earlier in life, in fact. And so essentially what this test is doing is looking at, the test in the paper, excuse me, is looking at how this new way to um, assess the, the, the state or the, develop, the, the developmental state of Alzheimer's disease, <clears throat> the progress of Alzheimer's disease, uh, and comparing that to the traditional way of looking at APOE4, which really doesn't say much at all other than that you're at a higher risk. Right. So I think um, to get into that, I mean, we, we do have ways to test for Alzheimer's disease. However, we have ways to test of like clinical emergence of Alzheimer's disease, of, of you know, patients coming into the clinic, doing a test, and the doctor coming back in the room and saying, you have Alzheimer's disease. Right. Um, and well, isn't that it's with scans and brain imaging? Exactly. Yeah. So so the leading um, method to do this is through a PET scan, which if you're not familiar with a PET scan, um, hopefully you don't really have to get one in the future because they're not used for fun things. Um, they kind of they inject you with a radioactive tracer. Um, that tracer is able to um, attach to a ligand or a specific site. And um, then you go into an MRI machine, and the MRI machine is able to pick up that fluorescence. Um, and so they can see exactly what they're looking for. Um, and so the big hallmark, we're going to get into this now, so everyone knows what we're talking about, is, drum roll please, Jacob, drum roll please, I'm waiting for you. Thank you. Amyloid beta, the protein that goes wrong, and that we have not 
we don't really know too much why or what or whatever it is or why why it happens. I mean, we do know why it happens. But we don't know too much about how to stop it or, or what happens when we stop it. Um, so amyloid beta is this really cool protein, super, super cool protein um, that builds up outside of the cell. Um, it basically, imagine like a traffic jam in the, like on the highway between you know, your house and your work. You can't get there too fast. No matter what you do, um, you're going to end up getting there 20, 30 minutes later. Um, and that's basically what amyloid beta does because it builds up outside of your cells. It blocks the transport of nutrients to your cells. It blocks the transport of things from other cells to other cells. So endocrine signaling, um, anything from, from endocrine signaling to nutrient transport to just, just about everything. Jacob, do you have anything to add? About amyloid beta? Yeah. Yeah, essentially it's a protein, like he was saying, that's, it's, it's endogenous. It, it, it normally occurs in the brain, but with uh, Alzheimer's disease, it's actually cleaved improperly. So in the production of this protein, it, um, it's cleaved imp improperly in that it uh, aggregates together. And so these aggregates become uh, cytotoxic eventually. So they kill cells, cytocell toxic. Um, cytotoxic. So it kills cells when it begins to aggregate. And so these aggregates are a hallmark, in, a, in addition to tau, we'll talk about in just a second, are a hallmark of Alzheimer's disease. So tau is a protein within the, neuro, uh, the microfilaments of a neuron. And there's something called um, uh, neurofibrillary tangles. And essentially these tau proteins will tangle and aggregate um, Similar, I guess, to the, you can think of it similarly as the amyloid beta aggregating outside the cell, except tau is on the inside of the cell. Bottom line, both of these, amyloid beta and tau, are hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease. And with the PET scan, like Milo was saying, this is my, what physicians might be looking for in order to give a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. Right, right. Um, and so with, with amyloid beta, that's going to be the hallmark sign that they're going to introduce um, for that radioactive ligand that we talked about to go attack. Um, and that's usually what, what clinicians and what researchers will be looking at, um, specifically for Alzheimer's. Tau is kind of generalized for a lot of dementia and a lot of mm, neurodegenerative yeah. diseases, um, just because, like you said, it's inside the cell and it attacks it attacks the, uh, the the filament structures that project into the axon. So basically the neuron has a cell body and then these long legs called axons um, and also has dendrites. We're, we're going to talk about those because, you know, those are kind of important. They make up part of the dendrites of the next neuron. And so what happens is tau is supposed to stabilize those microfilaments by kind of like acting as, let's talk about the highway example, those, you know, those those legs that hold the highway up, right? So, you know, if those legs weren't there or if they were smaller, then the highway would kind of crumble. So you can't really transport anything from the cell body to the axon and back. So speaking about amyloid beta um, and speaking about these genes that we just discussed, um, we don't necessarily know whether or not um, there's a huge environmental risk, but we do know that the genetic risk is minuscule and that the genetic risk in people who who have APOE4 or presinolin one PSEN1 or 2, um, th I mean, their, their risk is just increased. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to get it. And while sometimes their risk might get, you know, really, really, really big and really high, um, that doesn't explain the alarming numbers of, of people with Alzheimer's um, because the Alzheimer's Association 
um, states that in the United States, AD, or Alzheimer's disease, as we're going to refer it um, a lot during this episode, um, is the sixth leading cause of death. Um, and the genes that increase that person's risk for developing AD aren't necessarily common, like we just said, and definitely not common enough to produce that many Americans with AD. So to me, the numbers don't just add up. You know, there's got to be some sort of environmental cue. Right. Um, and in fact, there is a list so long and uh, so tedious to read and kind of heartbreaking because all of your favorite stuff could or couldn't be on there. Um, they don't even want to get into it. Because who knows if, you know, they're completely accurate and whether or not smoking or not smoking or, or eating red meat or not eating red meat could, could add up to your risk. So uh, we live in 2019. You know, it's almost 2020. Um, uh, by the time this episode's out, it probably will be 2020. The future. Um, and so tests to predict Alzheimer's disease have become pretty complex, I think, and efficient in a research setting to the point where they can test a patient years before the disease and require just a simple blood draw. And so why can't we have that right now? You want to get into it? Let's do it. Get into it. All right. Okay. So this article, Jacob, do you want to start us off? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, just like in every episode, we'll break down the title. We'll quickly talk about the abstract, go into the introduction, little methods, talk about our likes, dislikes, conclusions and future steps as anyone really uh looking at an article you know it sorry excuse me as as if anyone were to look at this article those are some basic steps you you'd take to get the gist of what's going on um so the name of this paper is the prediction of alzheimer's disease diagnosis within 14 years through amyloid beta misfolding in blood plasma compared to apoe4 status and other risk factors so if we break that down they're predicting alzheimer's disease diagnosis within 14 years so that's the first segment that's that's the big takeaway here is the prediction of alzheimer's disease diagnosis within 14 years. And the way they are doing that is looking at amyloid beta misfolding. We said amyloid beta misfolding is the hallmark of Alzheimer's disease. However, we said that is happening in the brain. And so they are saying amyloid beta misfolding in blood plasma. And so that is different. And we want to highlight that is they are not looking for the amyloid beta in the brain. They are actually right. looking in the patient's blood plasma, which is circulating throughout the body. So we'll comment on that in more detail later on. Um, it's one of my personal uh, uh, dislikes of this is that I it, know it is. I know. <laughs> but anyway, it says here compared to APOE4 status. And so what we want to point out is that that's the standard way to look at per, or to predict Alzheimer's disease diagnosis. And so they're comparing it to standard. But in reality, you'd be using both of these uh, to have a more solid prediction. So that's how this is adding to this conversation. Um, of course, like we mentioned, there are other risk factors. That's the final part of this title. And, and you know, you pretty much have to throw that in there because if you were to say anything else, like people would be like, oh, well, there's other stuff that can come in play. You know what I mean? So oh, that'll happen regardless. Right. Cool. So uh, before we start, we wanted to just give a quick shout out and a quick thank you um, to the authors for this research. Uh, we're not going to read all of their names because they are a lot and that is dead air, um, in my opinion. So we're just going to tell you that they're all from um, the wonderful country of Germany, um, specifically from Heidelberg and ba uh, Bachum. I don't know how to say that. Really sorry for butchering that, um, as well as Munich, Halle, and Saarbrücken. But <laughs> we will, <laughs> we will <laughs> like this paper and many other papers, they will be available on our website if you want to go um, look at the author's names, read the paper, make your own assessments and find other research as well. So to get into the introduction, 
Um, introductions are great. I love reading introductions. They're yeah. my favorite part of any paper. It's kind of like what they believe is the important history and why, um, you know, kind of looking at why they included that history specifically for their paper. And technically, and this, this is something of note, introductions are written in a more simple language. And so you can get a really good idea of what's going on in this paper, what's going to be discussed about, and the background needed to understand that in the introduction. For me personally, I actually really love reading the methods because that tells you exactly what they did. Right. right? And a lot of the times the introduction might lead you to think they're trying to look at something else or the results are going to be blown out of proportion. So everyone has their own little favorite things. We're going to go over everything though now. Right. Yeah, exactly. So my favorite is the introduction. So I'm going to talk about that. Um, so th they, they, they first bring up Alzheimer's disease as having this long prodromal stage. Um, and you can you can imagine every disease, for the most part, has some sort of prodromal stage. What's and that, the prodromal stage? Exactly. And that, that means a stage um, where the disease kind of builds up before it manifests as that disease. So, you know, you'll start to maybe have a few symptoms of that disease um, until you have a full-blown version of it as what is characterized as a clinical uh, diagnosis of that disease. So, you know, if you have the flu, um, as many of you have probably had, uh, you don't necessarily feel it the minute that the virus enters your body. You need it, it needs some time to incubate. It needs some time to spread. And by the time your your body's fighting it and giving you symptoms, um, it's actually become pretty widespread into a certain area. So much like this, uh, much like the flu, Alzheimer's disease has a prodromal stage. But rather than it being like a week or two, it's a lot of years no. um, because the buildup of um, these proteins is not necessarily super fast. Um, it's something that happens kind of by accident. Um, and your body does clear up amyloid beta. I, I don't think we, we actually mentioned that, but your body does clear up amyloid beta. Um, it can, however, right. Right, yeah, it can. But in Alzheimer's disease, that amyloid beta seems to stick around. Um, and whether or not it seems to stick around or whether or not it just doesn't get cleared as quickly as, as like the normal brain. Right, well, um, that's, that's because of these amyloid beta plaques. So right. they're actually aggregating together. So like amyloid beta, if cleaved properly, is fine. Um, it's relatively harmless as far as I'm aware. Um, but yeah, there's essentially issues in clearing the, the amyloid beta plaques. Right, exactly. Um, and there's also kind of this weird sense where they kind of, that sometimes, or at least it, it may not be amyloid beta, but sometimes they act um, to recruit other amyloid beta to aggregate together. So if you have like one plaque, it increases the chance of other plaques, kind of like a cascading effect. Mm. So they, they speak about this long prodromal stage um, because this is the stage where, where people don't necessarily have symptoms. They're probably not going to go to their doctor's office and start saying like, hey, I'm having these horrible memory issues as people with Alzheimer's do. Um, but there's still something happening in their body that will end up leading to this disease. Um, and if we can treat something early, um, in my opinion and many other experts' opinion, I can assume um, that's a good thing because it's probably easier. You know, we have this this role of preventative medicine moving forward um, in in the clinical setting. So um, it's important to to bring that up. And so uh, they wanted to investigate specifically a beta misfolding again in blood plasma um, and being able to see how they can predict that years before the disease. So now we get into your favorite part, right? The methods. Methods. So essentially, they had. 
um, a survey sent out, uh, almost like 2,500 surveys, about 75% were returned, of which 212 identified participants had dementia diagnosis. So this included Alzheimer's disease, vascular disease, mixed dementia, frontal temporal dementia, or unspecified dementia. So of those cases specifically, the clinical diagnosis of AD made up about 70 of the 212. Um, and so that's what they are working with here. And they actually give stats breaking down Alzheimer's disease, vascular dementia, and mixed dementia um, later on to show which one was affected most. And so to me, this is really that's really important data to show because it's saying we are looking at amyloid beta misfolding in the blood and it's specifically linked to just Alzheimer's disease, not just not just all dementia in general. So that's kind of a, a point definitely in their favor. But essentially, yeah, so they had these um, all these studies and then compared it, all of these clinical diagnoses of Alzheimer's disease in this uh, survey they sent out and compared that to a control sample of about a four to one ratio control to case ratio. Uh, sorry, they had a control to case ratio of 4.1. Yeah, so, th so they got these uh, th this data from the Esther study, um, which was this big group of people in Germany um, who... I guess signed up for this um, in their in their later years and kind of were tracked. Their health data was basically tracked for for about thirty years. Um, and in the Esther study, there was about nine thousand nine hundred and forty people. Um, and uh, they 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 basically used the baseline from two thousand two thousand two. And at that time, um, there were varying ages, but I think they they only used ages. Um, well, they matched about age. fifty two to seventy five yeah. years. Um, and they matched age. So. Right. And so, yeah, what that means, um, what that means is that they, in comparing two people that have similar um, disease or not disease uh, control and AD patient, they had the same age. So they would only, they would match those ages so that that wouldn't be a confounding factor. Right. Yeah. So they, so they, they match that. They also match APOE4 status, sex education, which is really interesting, we can get into that later, um, physical activity, obesity, diabetes, hypertension, and history of cardiovascular event, stroke, death due to, well, actually that's part of that, um, and depression as well. So what they did is they they just kind of looked at the, the baseline studies, um, and they actually did two different tests to test to see if there was any significant value between um, A beta misfolding in AD cases versus non-AD cases, as well as all those other um, categories that I just mentioned. Um, so do you, want to, do you want to try poking at these results a little? Let me preface this. So in the end, they actually only ended up with 59 AD cases, not the 71, um, just because they they had to throw some out at the end um, due to you know some some error with with something. Well, but yeah, it was likely patient, right? Pa patient exactly. Someone issues. rescinding their, right. their um, confirmation or consent. Sorry, big word. Um, and then they ended up with 57 VD. Um, but they had 620 controls, which is a lot of people to base a specific thing off of. So in my opinion, that is that is really good. Right. So yeah, so they, so they found a 72.9% um, uh, misfolding of A-beta in the blood plasma of the patients with Alzheimer's disease from the 0 to 14-year uh, point, and only 11 per, yeah, only 11% in the control group, which is a p-value of less than 0 0.0001, which is a very high confidence interval where you can say 
almost 100% um, difference between the two. And why is that important, Jacob? Yeah, essentially, if you have that, that high confidence interval, it's telling you that amyloid beta is this, this, this amyloid beta that they're seeing in the blood plasma is statistically different than in the controls. So the blood plasma right. of the Alzheimer's disease patients is statistically different than the controls. And so it gives the test more validity. Exactly. And so um, uh, about 45.8% of the same had Alzheimer's disease, had a copy of APOE4, and that percent was about 45.8% as compared to 24.5% of the control, um, which is actually less of a confidence interval than the A-beta misfolding, which provided a more robust um, and a little bit more accurate view um, of their study. So, so they were able to kind of compare these two pretty well, you know, uh, compared to the APOE4 um, tests that we do. Um, this actually provided a better measure of Alzheimer's disease, or at least amyloid beta misfolding, um, and uh, in, a, in a different testing standpoint than um, just measuring the APOE4 status. To sum up all of the results, Amyloid mis misfolding was associated with a 23-fold increase odds of clinical AD diagnosis within 14 years. And this is a 23-fold increase odds compared to control, and that's what's important to note here. This 23-fold increase odds is just saying, um, similar to how APOE4 suggests there is an increased odds of getting uh, clinically diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, um, this is it, it's the same idea there where it, it's it's predicting your your what am i trying to say i don't know why i've just had a freaking brain fart but it's all right um brain new <laughs> uh it's a better name right brain fart um anyway all i'm trying to say is that looking at apoi4 would tell about a 2.4 fold increase odds of clinical ad while ab misfolding in this study Again, APOE4 was in this study, but APOE4 was in this study. Oh, my God. I don't know why. I can't. I literally just can't speak right now. Okay. <laughs> That's okay. To, to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start over. I'm literally going to start over. <laughs> to summarize the results, AB misfolding was associated with 23-fold increased odds of clinical AD diagnosis within 14 years. And again, this is compared to a control. So 23-fold increased odds, meaning... Similarly to how APOE4 tells the individual you have a higher risk of getting Alzheimer's disease, this 23-fold increase is just the, of the risk of getting uh, clinical, being diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Right, and that's just patients who have um, like high characteristics of A-beta misfolding, and they, but they don't even have the disease. Right. Um, so you can't necessarily say that they're going to get Alzheimer's for sure, but 23-fold increased risk is... Uh, it's pretty high. good compared no. to 2.4 if you just uh, are APOE4 positive. Right. So that was the other stat that they right. pulled from this is APOE4 positive high. participants had a 2.4-fold increase odds of clinical AD diagnosis within 14 years. Right. Again, so these are all results from this paper. This isn't necessarily something that's global. Um, these are all results from about uh, 9,000 people from Germany living in um, in their older years between like 2000, 2005. Um, but, uh, you know, this is something that we can use to generalize because something I liked, actually loved about the results is they included so much and like so many tests 
um, to kind of like go over so many different um, aspects of Alzheimer's disease and dementia in general, as well as education, um, which we, we forgot to talk about, but we can talk about in just a second. Um, and, um, you know, the, the, I, I think this was kind of a very well done study, um, something that they did very well, and not to mention the fact that they used two different methods um, to test for statistics of difference between the groups. Um, but I think this, this is a, one of those things where you can kind of generalize and say, okay, if those people had some sort of 23-fold increase odds, there's, there's something going on here that, that points to how valid this test is. I don't know. Am I, am I being too general? Am I, I mean, giving them too much credit? Yeah, I mean, everything needs to be taken with a grain of salt. I think this is a very important test, and I one one of the likes or one of the dislikes. Uh, excuse me, excuse me. One of the likes I would like to point out at this time is that it really needs to not just be um, compared to APOE four, but used in conjunction with APOE four. Um, if this were to ever become clinical uh, uh, clinical practice, right, right, and um, something we didn't mention before, but but you know, testing in the blood um, and testing for amyloid beta. Um, that's it's not new, you know. It's it's not something that's like brand new, or else, you know, we wouldn't really be the only ones talking about this paper. This paper would be all over the place, um, but it enhances the external validity just in terms of how they use this wide group um, community setting um, to to test their methods. And what else is what else do we like, Jacob? Well, I guess catching Alzheimer's disease early, right? Um, it's not curative. Um, because you can't cure Alzheimer's yet, but yeah. you're going to cure it for us. Um, it can help with the disease progression. I mean, just like any uh, disease, you know, therapies have to help, right? Well, yeah, I mean, with chronic disease, and this is something I'm personally interested in, but with chronic disease, there are a lot of environmental factors that we're understanding. And a lot of those are largely preventable, um, uh, whether or not you smoke or not, for example, or, or continued education, as we keep hinting at. So one thing that we really liked about this paper is that they looked at the age, sex, education um, of these individuals and matched those to the controls. And so one of the environmental factors uh, that we're both interested in for Alzheimer's disease is this lack of education, or rather stopping formal education earlier in life. And so the ADA, the Alzheimer's Disease Association, has some stats on their website. It's a fantastic website. I recommend giving them a look. Absolutely. Super but, easy to read, too. Right, yeah. But uh, has some has some stats saying how continuing formal education later in life not only delays Alzheimer's disease um, progression, but also reduces risk of even getting it in the first place. Right. And so, so this paper, I, I think everyone who um, participated in the study had some sort of higher education, so you can't necessarily see anything in this paper. Um, but there is this really important study called the Nun study done a while back, um, which is a great segue into, you know, this, this study talking about education where these, these cloister, this cloister of nuns, um, I forget exactly where they were. I, th I think they might've been in Europe, but they, they dedicated their life to education and to teaching and to learning new things. Um, and the cool thing about these nuns um, on a research standpoint is that they basically had their entire lives controlled for. They were basically the same person. You know, they woke up in the morning, they did their prayer, they ate, 
Um, they went into the garden. They learned. They they you know tried to do something um, in the evening, and you know they they died at roughly the same age too. So so they were able to kind of have these, and they donated their brains to science. Um, that's you know they didn't just like go slice their brains off um, when they died, but so so when they were delivered to to laboratories. Um, they were able to know um, that while they were living, basically everything was the same, including education. Um, and so they, they, you know, cut their brains open. And surprisingly, for uh, not a majority, but, but a good amount of them had these amyloid beta plaques, like all over their brain, like super characteristic of Alzheimer's disease, but they didn't show any symptoms when they were alive, or at least none were reported. Um, so there's got to be something to be said about, you know, education since since in this study um, basically everything was controlled for including education which was at high right so stay in right. school yeah right so and i think that points that some of the future um, aspects that we wanted to talk about of this study is is looking at these different populations um, particularly ones where education is either low and or high and and um, kind of going from from different angles to paint a bigger picture right, of right. the validity of this test. Exactly. One thing we, we do want to talk about are some of our dislikes of this paper. And I uh, hinted at this earlier, but there's this uncertainty about amyloid beta, um, essentially because it is in the brain and there's a clearance issue, it's going to stay in the brain. And so there's this thing called the blood-brain barrier BBB. And for anything to go into the blood plasma where they are looking, that's circulating the body, it has to cross that barrier. And so this barrier is very problematic in most drug development and in diagnosing or in, in taking samples from the brain, right? Things of that nature, or not taking samples rather, but um, imaging or uh, uh, drug delivery. I think I already said that. Anyway, there's this barrier. And this paper is looking at blood plasma. And I'm skeptical whether I was skeptical whether or not it is a true representation of patients that have Alzheimer's disease. Um, essentially, just because you have it in your blood doesn't mean that it's aggregating in the brain and causing causing neurodegeneration. Hard to say. Yeah. So I want to kind of knock that point down just a little bit. Just a little bit. You have a great point. But so in, in the paper, they, they did address that. I mean, they, they knew that we were going to scrutinize them. Right, of course. Well, uh, and, and that's why I'm pointing it out. Every, everyone uh, would say that, right? And, so I, and this is where the point is in their favor as well, and Mila will touch on it. Right. So, so what they pointed out is that amyloid beta is also you know, in, in the body. We'll call it the periphery. Whenever we're not talking about the brain, we'll call it the periphery. It's also in the periphery. Um, and it's released by, by different organs. And it seems to be, through this study, kind of correlational to how much uh, the amyloid beta is in the brain. So whether or not amyloid beta is crossing the brain or if it's being produced in similar numbers in the body, it seems to be just about the same. Because if, if we can get this well, not ju number, Not just the same. It, it seems to be associated with associated, Alzheimer's disease. Just about. You know, associated that's what, with Alzheimer's right, disease. Yeah. And, that's, and that's what we talked about earlier where they have these different dementias. But this particular amyloid beta in this folding was only st st statistically, excuse me, significant for all sciences. Right, and being able to measure amyloid beta in the blood seems to have a pretty good um, chance of indicating whether or not that person has right, amyloid beta in the brain. Right, that 23-fold increase. Exactly, or, or may or may not develop, um, or have a higher chance of developing AD in about 14 years. Why 14 years? 
Do we know? I mean, no. I, I, I think that was probably just the length of the study. It might right. increase. So but. so I think I think they, they, they chose 14 years because it was like the the mm, about the latest point where they kind of like peaked at the amount of results because they did zero to like seven and then eight to 14 right. or something like that. Um, and yeah, I, I, it's, it's not super well known as why they did 14 years, but I think after those 14 years, it was kind of like, well, they have Alzheimer's now. Um, and it, it's, it's pretty, uh, it's, it's pretty, you know, set standard from different resources that it's not going to take much more than like 10 to 20 years. Although we could be wrong. We could definitely be wrong. You know, you yeah, could get Alzheimer's tomorrow. <laughs> Just kidding. You won't get Alzheimer's tomorrow. Anyway, so another one of our dislikes um, is possible misdiagnosis, right? And so there's this idea of a false positive where if, or, or a, a false negative, even for that matter, where if someone would ha say have a high level of amyloid beta, but then not get uh, Alzheimer's disease, but were diagnosed with it because they had this high level of amyloid beta, right? You can see where the problems could arise um, there. The, the, the good thing, the good and bad, I guess, the bad being that Alzheimer's disease is not cured. But the good thing is that, it, say you were to be diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, right now, there isn't much that can be done. And so really this test is, is saying you might get it, and that's a really powerful thing to say, right? You might get this disease, but there's a lot you can do to prevent it. Like we were saying, there's a lot of environmental factors. And so we do want to point out that it's not really a dislike, but something to note is that this needs to be must be used in conjunction with APOE4 looking at that or other diagnostic tools because right. of this possible issue of a misdiagnosis. Right. So now we get into the end. So now we have, you know, we've reviewed this test that is just a simple blood draw where you go into your doctor's office as you're getting your blood drawn, they take another tube, which sucks because they have our, they already have like five tubes that they're drawing blood out of you. They take another one. Um, and they send it off to a lab, and they can give you some sort of prediction of Alzheimer's disease. Now, this is when we get into ethical problems, because the, uh, a problem in the past has been with prostate cancer tests. So there is this big prostate cancer, not scandal, but, you know, something weird that happened where, where patients were taking these tests, coming back with quite a few false positives, and doctors were basically saying, look, you're going to have a high chance of having prostate cancer, which is obviously bad. So what we can do now is a surgery to remove your prostate, which might leave you incontinent um, among, you know, various other things. Not, you know, that's not even including the, the cost and invasiveness of a procedure where you take out someone's prostate. And, you know, these people were, were coming back and they actually, they're, you know, the, these tests were coming back at such high false positive rates um, that, it was kind of unsure what to do, you know, like, should you do the, the, the procedure regardless, you know, whose autonomy, whose directive, um, is it, uh, is it the doctors to, to kind of be like, you should do this, even though it is a false positive, is it the patients? Um, and there's actually, a, I think, a, a law case about this. But speaking about Alzheimer's disease, you know, if, if, if the test comes back positive, what's the worst that can happen? Right. You know, someone changes their lifestyle. Right. Yeah. Do you, you know, you more education, you eat more, Healthier, healthier foods, food, yeah. not just eat more. Um, you know, that's so. So I think at the end of the day, like having this person say, like, I can tell you when and where you're gonna die, being when and where you're gonna get Alzheimer's and whatever. Um, having that in your life can't necessarily be too bad. It can only be kind of good. Right. That's why. I, that's why I answered the question the way I did, man. I mean, it's you know, 
do I want to know? Well, can I present prevent it, right? Like if I was just told I was going to be diagnosed diagnosed with this, like, yeah, I can do something about that. Exactly. Anyway, so moving forward, the future of, of this study and why it relates to all of us, right? I mean, I, I think it's, it's really cool to think about these kind of things. I think it's great to progress research. Again, we said this isn't incredibly... Uh, this isn't an incredibly novel finding. The ability to to test for amyloid beta has become uh, more specific and more sensitive, um, but this isn't really new. And so this is building off of previous research and right. and moving forward in these studies and future studies, um, higher specificity, being able to detect even lower amounts, make that twenty eight, make that thirty years, right? Something like that, I think, is is the future of this. And so the point of this podcast and. The point of this specific podcast and the podcast in general is to is to show how looking at this research can be incredibly useful. And we hope to be able to inspire people to take be, we hope to be able to inspire people to do more research and to progress this further um, and to, and to ask these sort of questions. I agree. You know, even if you don't do research, I think it's still important to ask these questions and to to talk to your friends and your family um, and, and to be informed. I think being able to, to stay informed through the scientists who are actually doing this research is, is important because, you know, you're, you're smart enough to make your own opinions. Um, I know I'm not. Um, so, yeah. So I, we, we hope you learned something today. You know, we, we spoke a lot. We spoke a lot about Alzheimer's disease. Um, we kind of... I'd say a little. <laughs> it's a big topic. Tumbled, yeah, yeah. We kind of tumbled over the paper. And we hope that you enjoyed it. This has been Brain New, Episode 1. I'm Milo Charbel. And Jacob Knittel. And we love you. Yeah, we, we do love you, seriously. So anyways, um, to wrap this up, if you want to take a look at our website, it's brainnewpodcast.com. B-R-A-I-N-P-O-D-C-A-S-T dot com. Really long, but we have all of our information. Yeah, we think up you're there. smart. You you can't spell brain. Podcast. I should I should spell it because I don't know how to. Would spell you call it brain podcast? Brain new. Did you? I Maybe I didn't. Let me say that again. So brain new podcast. B r a i n n e w p o d c a s t dot com. That's why people have already skipped over at this point. People have skipped over it. People have already skipped over at this point. Should I do the end again? No, I think it's funny. You think it's funny? Okay. Anyway. <laughs> oh, so, <laughs> <bloopers>. <laughs> yeah so so please follow us we're gonna be on app, apple music google Podcasts. uh well, actually not apple music apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, spotify everywhere you want to consume and and enjoy um all of your favorite podcasts will be there um and if you consider donating you can also find that on our on our website we appreciate you and, and everything you do um, and all of the donations help us keep going and keep running to the future, actually stumbling to the future. Um, and uh, again, if you have any questions, please reach out to us on our website, whether you just want to say hi or say you guys are horrible and you should have included this. We want to hear it and we'd love to hear it. And if you, um, have, a, if you have a paper, this, this is another cool thing. You know, if you have a paper for a class that needs to be read and you don't understand it, send it our way. Send it. <laughs> we'll all read it together. Yeah, um, that'd and, be fun. And, yeah. Um, and if you're if you're a teacher and you want to show this to your students, please do. We don't ta- we don't say bad words. Thank you for listening. Bye. Say bye. <laughs> bye. <laughs>